Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, this is Andrew Rimby with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am currently coming to you all from historic Atlantic City at the Claridge Hotel, which um, has a lot of storied history, and maybe we'll discuss a full episode about Atlantic City's history in the next coming months. So stay tuned to see if I can bring my Atlantic City fandom to the podcast space. There is a book I'm currently reading called Boardwalk of Dreams by Brian Simon. And so much history at the Claridge Hotel, including a story about Marilyn Monroe when she did stay here. She was the 1952 Miss America Grand Marshal. And I was able to go up to the rooftop last night to have some food and drink and the um, server actually explained how the penthouse that we could see from the rooftop um, that no longer is a penthouse but is storage actually is where Marilyn Monroe stayed. So I was keeping my eye out just to see maybe I could spot an aura or an orb. Uh, So I am really excited to bring to you all this week a vacation Um, podcast episode, but when Adam and I recorded this, I was still on Long Island. Uh, So we are really eager to have Dr. Sheila Lemming on our podcast. And it really fits well after having Lev Raphael on last week. And don't worry, um, if you're waiting for part two, it will come out next week. But we thought it would be really nice to insert Dr. Sheila Lemming as a discussion around Edith Wharton, and she is a scholar of Edith Wharton. She has done archival research, discusses a digital humanities project, um, touches upon university precarity and funding. Um, She also continues the fanaticism and excitement around the Gilded Age, which you know I am so in awe of and love to always discuss. She recently came out with a book. It's called What a Library Means to a Woman, and we deconstruct that title because it really has layers of what Dr. Lemming studies. So I know Adam and I were just really eager to get to cover so many topics. Unfortunately, Adam didn't get a chance to talk about Dr. Lemming's country music enthusiasm, Um, but we do have a special treat for you, so stay tuned after our conclusion of the interview because we will have Dr. Lemming's very own music debut with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. So... Stay tuned for that surprise. Also, we want to remind all of you, we have our first in-person event 
at Words Matter Bookstore, who is our official sponsor. And it will be on August 3rd from 7 to 9 p.m. It is in Pittman, New Jersey, a gem of a town um, and a very artsy town. So if you do live around South Jersey or you're in New Jersey, you're in Philadelphia, you're in South Jersey, this is a great opportunity to get to meet us. I'll be there, Adam will be there, Mary will be there, and Erica will actually be hosting um, with two other co-hosts a virtual open mic reading of poetry. So all of that information can be found on our RSVP site, which I have linked here in the podcast notes, so please do check that out. Um, And we are asking for suggested donations, so... We really appreciate any donations that you all do uh, give us because it does help fund our literary and artistic community and, and endeavor. And we're able to provide the content that we can because of all of your support. So thank you all. We hope you all are staying safe and healthy. And we really hope that you enjoy Dr. Lemming's interview. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am actually coming to you all from my phone for the first time. So thank you, Adam. You are always the genial co-host to be recording for me. Um, We are really happy to be talking with Dr. Sheila Liming. Um, And Sheila, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thank you. It's fabulous to be here. (laughs) Um, your interview uh, nicely falls right after having interviewed Lev Raphael. So we told him that we were really excited to have him talking about his fascination with Wharton and then you coming on with your Wharton scholarly hat. So it's a nice, (laughs) it's a nice book ending. You're you're actually here in your capacity as a bagpipe enthusiast. (laughs) That's fine. We can talk bagpipes if you want to talk bagpipes. (laughs) I I want to, but... (laughs) I can talk bagpipes all day long. (laughs) Okay, maybe that'll be Adam's um, (laughs) after his end note to the interview. We'll we'll, we'll need to do some bonus content for the people who are into, like, (laughs) European folk music. No, that's true. So... I mean, if you could walk us through, Sheila, just how did you get into thinking of Edith Wharton, knowing about Edith Wharton? Um, I know you have a really interesting story there. Well, um, when I was doing my PhD uh, coursework, I was at Carnegie Mellon University 
And I was in the last semester of my coursework. So I was going into my dissertation pr prospective stage. And I already thought I had an idea of what I was gonna write my dissertation about. And then in the last semester of my coursework, I was um, in a class with Dr. David Shemway on the history of literary realism, where we kind of read across the mode of literary realism from its beginnings, arguably up until the present, if we wanna say that, still say that realism is active and working. And um, in that class, we read Edith Wharton. It was the first time I had ever read her. It was, I mean, I'd heard the name, but I didn't know anything about her as an author. We read The House of Mirth as part of what we were studying in the class. And it was a big moment for me. I, I felt like um, I had this sense of like uh, burning injustice. Like where has everyone been hiding this writer who I love so much? And also because, you know, part of the ideas that I had been starting to, we'll say gestate for my dissertation um, were on the ways that women's writing and men's writing at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century were often separated in terms of seriousness and genre. They were given different sort of genre labels or tags. And here I encountered this woman who I thought was very fiercely crossing over some of those divides in interesting ways, still getting considered to be a pretty like serious literary realist um, and treading in territory where I didn't see um, a lot of other authors like her being allowed to tread. Wow. Yeah, it's, yeah. Those are really good points. Um, we we talk about this all the time, right? That like that there's that that you don't you you know the the pub you write your book and then the, the publisher slaps a cover on it and if the cover is pink then it's a chick lit book and it gets sold in a certain section of the bookstore. I actually knew somebody who went through this. Uh, somebody who was a precocious author was publishing in her twenties when I was, um, yep. when I was at college still. And, that is absolutely um, true. <laughs> and she, she wrote this book and it wasn't written as a chick lit book, but they slapped a pink cover on it. So it was chick lit. Actually something that I was extremely concerned about just because the title of the book has the word woman in it. And so um, when I was working with the University of Minnesota Press who was wonderful and great to work with. Um, and they asked me for ideas about cover design. I, my only stipulation was no pink. I don't want any pink on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's true. Your cover has, right, if you could describe the cover, that would be helpful. So Sheila's book is what a library means to a woman. Um, and it's almost a mosaic of sorts, would you say, Sheila? Yeah, so they took the idea from marbled end papers that appear at the end of custom bound books from the late 19th century, you know, those beautiful hand designed marble dyed papers. Mm -hmm. And they have these kind of mosaic designs to them. And I thought that was a great idea because I was, you know, specifically asking for something that would not be overtly feminine, given the content of the book that is um, in many ways about Wharton wrestling with gender in a literary marketplace, you know, um, so I, I wanted it to not be too overtly feminine. And and they came up with an image that I think speaks really well to the, her aesthetics for her mm -hmm. library and you know for the things that she valued. Yeah, and I know when we were talking in our pre-interview that um, like why I needed to have Sheila come on was just all the work you've done of looking into those gendered expectations with Wharton's prose um, and her poetics that there's especially now in our current day, a lot of these expectations that you either read Wharton or you read Henry James. And I've always been um, confused about why it's a one or the other since they're such distinct writers. They were friends, mm -hmm. right? They read both. 
They were so, friends. They had they had a rather complicated friendship, as I think anybody would have a complicated friendship with Henry James. Yeah, um, he but, seems like he but was they a were bit friends. Of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what he does. E even when you're reading his books, and I, I find I personally find his prose to be spellbinding. <laughs> but you can't help thinking this was written by an asshole. <laughs> at the very least a like committed narcissist right <laughs> yes yes but i think you make a great point adam that they were reading each other so shouldn't we yeah exactly uh, like shouldn't the scholarly community right. community be reading each other's work but i think um well sheila i'm curious we i know there was a lot that we didn't get to um that i know i'm in anticipation about now interviewing which is about your work with different Wharton societies or organizations, um, that there is an openness that they have. Like, can you explain even maybe how your um, book project, the way you're looking at the literary marketplace was received by Wharton scholars? Sure, um, and that's something that I think, you know, because the book is only a year old is still sort of unfolding. I'm still kind of like learning about that reception, but. Obviously, I was talking about these ideas, you know, for years as I was writing the book and getting it ready for publication, too. So I've been engaged in conversations about it. And um, a little over a year ago, at the MLA conference in 2020, I organized a panel that was on the state of the single author study, as I called it, because I was under this impression that um, presses and to some extent PhD programs and dissertation advisors we're moving away from the idea of studying a single author at one point in time, that there was a kind of like um, concern for limitations that would be placed on such studies or even on the marketability of them. So going into this, I knew that I was doing a single author study ostensibly and that that's not cool anymore. Um, so I you know, had that feeling that I had to kind of work through, but actually what I found in working on a single author and what I found working with the Edith Wharton Society and you know working with the Mount, Edith Wharton's historic home in Lenox, Massachusetts, is that when you have a kind of singular focus like that and it's a figure who's already been deemed canonical, you actually have a very wide spectrum for what kinds of methodologies are allowed or possible within that framework. It's like, we've already decided our major question. Let's read Edith Wharton. Now let's see how many ways we can eat, read Edith Wharton. And that's pretty cool because it actually gives you a bit of freedom. Yeah, it sounds like what I do with Whitman, that like the way that I apply a queer lens, the reception angle, Mm -hmm. it's all really embraced by the scholarly community. Like, even though, you know, even though that there's not an immense amount of queer work done, there's the pathway. And I feel mm -hmm. even, I've like dabbled briefly with Wharton um, in a talk and her connection to Whitman, Whitman and Wharton's relationship, her reading Whitman, I'll say, so her, reception of him um that it's so appreciated by Wharton scholars like this just like add more layers to Wharton it's yeah. more of the end approach instead of no no we need to define um how palatable this author has to be yeah it's a yeah. really well, interesting angle I'm obviously not in your century um scholarly <laughs> uh, scholar scholarship wise but um I remember one of our professors said that the problem is that there are just too many people wrote books in the 19th century, right? I mean, um, 
Henry James alone, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about like what it would take to be a Wharton scholar, for instance, who was also alive to the issues in Henry James. His books alone run to like 30 volumes. Yeah. He yeah. like like I I'm I'm trying to write a book or two right now, and I'm a little bit in awe of these people who can turn one out like every year and have and have them be of that level of quality, but that's a story for another yeah. Uh, yeah well, time. It, it just makes me think of, um, you know, the science fiction writer, Kim Stanley Robinson, who I, I spent some time with a couple of years ago because he was visiting my campus. And Kim Stanley Robinson always refers to the science fiction writing that he does today as, quote unquote, the realism of our time. And that guy turns out a book every year. And yeah. like, we're not talking a little book. We're talking like a 1400 page honker every <laughs> single year. And right. it is it is reminiscent of that moment that you're talking about, Adam, in the 19th century when people were just really, really, um, you know, just so prolific in yeah. what they were producing and what they were putting out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when you have a public, then the publisher can really play, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. The way they guide you, that relationship is so dynamic, especially, I'm assuming, I don't know that sci fi writer, Sheila, but I'm going to look into. You said Stanley Robinson is the Tim last Stanley name? Robinson, yes. Okay, okay. He's great, because he's basically writing Wharton novels, but in space and in the future. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's... Um, That's a good recommendation, by the way. No, I like it. <laughs> Some of our listeners will take note and be like, oh, I guess I'm getting into sci-fi now. <laughs> didn't have that on my schedule for 2021, but didn't have a lot of this shit on my schedule either, so... That's true. Learn. Yeah, well, and... You know, uh, the one question I really was, we're always asking our guests if they've gone through a PhD process, because not all of them do, but because you did go through a PhD process and you defended and your dissertation work, you know, had the trajectory of going into a book length um, project, right? It followed those steps, but I'm sure there were also obstacles or, you know, challenges you met along the way like can you describe maybe even how you broke through maybe a certain obstacle sure um you know i'll i'll start with the first obstacle which has to do with the transition from dissertation to book and i will just say that my dissertation was not a book and i knew that the second i was done with it um it was it was a document that was written for a very specific audience and that audience was not a general audience of scholars or even you know um, specialists in a field it was my particular committee of scholars. And, but that's okay because that work that I did on my dissertation kind of got me thinking along conceptual lines of things that I wanted to continue working on and thinking about. It also got me in the archive and that's where the second ch challenge comes up that you mentioned. Um, when I was working on my dissertation, I, I visited the Mount, um, Edith Wharton's historic home. And this is the home in Lenox, Massachusetts that she built and designed herself um, it was very much custom made for her to be like her ideal place. And of course she built it with her husband, Teddy at the time. And then later they got divorced and she lost that home and she moved to Europe for the rest of her life. But she had a real sense of intentionality where this home was concerned. And after she died, as I describe in the book, many, many decades later, her library books came back to reside at the Mount and that's where they are now. So you can visit them and they're in the space of the library that she designed and they're also held there in general, um, overflowing the space of the library because there's far more than it can even accommodate. 
And when I was working on my dissertation, I traveled to the Mount and I was interested in looking at books that I knew she had read because I had records of her talking about them in letters or, you know, in correspondence or, or various things where she was talking about what she was reading with other people. So I knew she'd read these books and I wanted to go see them, not realizing that half of them were destroyed after her death. And so half of them aren't even there, um, but a good portion of them are. And what was difficult for me was the navigability of that particular archive because the Mount is set up to be a museum primarily. It is not um, specifically functioning as a scholarly archive, though increasingly I think that's become its purpose, especially in the last 10 years. So when I first got there, there was no way of like asking a librarian, like, you know, where is this book? Or, you know, how can I locate this? Or do you know anything that Wharton says about X? Um, that was all kind of work that I had to do uh, by touching and feeling my way through the archive. So that became um, my genesis for a digital project that I started working on in 2014, which was the building of the Wharton Digital Library Archive, just as a way of providing scholars like myself a way of navigating the physical library at the Mount in case they wanted to see what she was reading and maybe even see it themselves, like go visit there in person and hold that book in their hands. Yeah, and I've used that. Um, I've used Sheila's project for locating Leaves of Grass when I was trying to find that. And someone in the Melville Society, because I'm on there um, in their community as well, with ways that I've worked on Melville with Moby Dick, that um, tangential. <laughs> I'm not I'm not writing a dissertation on Moby Dick. I'm writing a dissertation on leaves of grass, primarily. But um that someone said, wait, did Melville um, enjoy reading Wharton and I said well she had two editions of Moby Dick and all of that was through your project. Oh, other Excellent. Way <laughs> yeah. Love to hear it. <laughs> did Wharton enjoyed reading Melville. Mm -hmm. Yeah yeah sorry Wharton enjoyed reading Melville. Um, uh, that it's so helpful to have that search tool because that's something a challenge at the Whitman birthplace that I've on Long Island is where his home is located. So work that I've done there, they're actually now in that step of, they have all of this pri uh, private collection of, um, you know, books he owned and mem um, memoranda, memorabilia, but none of it is categorized. So like they're working right now on categorizing it and, you know, letting it be open to scholars. But yeah, it is interesting how these, um, it's an ongoing process to archive because like so many of these um, cultural places, um, especially author homes, they just don't have enough of the staff to dedicate resources exactly. to archiving and it takes a lot of time. Yeah. And and I, you know, I just want to give a plug quickly for the staff at the Mount because they are incredible. The, the staff that exists there, they they are superhuman individuals who go above and beyond the jobs that they are supposed to do on a daily basis to do all kinds of jobs. But what we're really talking about are nonprofit institutions, right? So um, yeah, well, their their means are limited and their reach is limited. Well, this gets into the article that you wrote for Chronicle, right? <laughs> Uh, not not to not to not to bring up you know old scars but what was it called my university is dying and yours might yes. be too that is that is the uh, title that the editor chose for it yes <laughs> okay fair enough we okay. seldom get to choose our own titles but mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean this is this is an issue that that we have been talking about especially um 
this month our theme is education and um, public scholarship and stuff like that. The stuff costs money, right? Yeah. I mean, teachers cost money, libraries cost money, yeah. people to run the libraries uh, cost money. And it's it's actually extremely fortunate that I entered my previous school, University of North Dakota, which is, you know, the school that I wrote that article about. It's really fortunate that I entered it when I did and started working there when I did, because right in the beginning, I got some um, very important scholarly grants that allowed me to purchase equipment like a portable digital scanner and also OCR software so I could start building the Wharton Archive. And then also, you know, time and travel funding to travel to the Mount in the summer and do that work. And just a year after I got there, there were massive budget cuts that eliminated a lot of the support for scholarly research. If I'd gotten near there a year later, I would have not had those resources resources available to me so and quick, I might have not written this book. Quick question just for, for those of us who are not as involved in scholarly research. How much money have you would you say you spent on equipment that year, the scanner and the software? And how much money have you had to spend in general <laughs> under various uh, pretexts? Um, that's a good question. So my initial grant was for $8,000. And then after that, I got a couple more on top of that, like smaller ones. I think I got a 2,500 one and then a 3,000 one. So that's that's adding up to what, like $1,200 total, $13,000. Um, yeah. And then on top of that, there's the money that I personally spent when, on travel. Um, because of right. course, none of the travel stipends or grants that I got actually were enough to cover my expenses. I mean, I had to live in Massachusetts for a couple months at a time in order to do this work. Um, on the digital archive. And, and most of that was out of my own pocket when I also, of course, wasn't being paid because it was the summer, so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's, yes. I mean, people, everybody knows that, um, that research in, for example, physics costs money. Mm -hmm. It's important to, to realize that, that research in this stuff costs money too. And it's yeah. just, as, just as worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Way. Yeah. And I'm just curious. So what was the thrust of that argument in the Chronicle piece, uh, Sheila? Because forgive me, I didn't read that piece. No, no, no. And for our listeners. That's fine. Um, it was occasioned by the headlines about the budget cuts that were happening at the University of Alaska, um, which were happening in 2018. And a lot of those budget cuts, fortunately for the University of Alaska system, were sort of tempered or rolled back. But some of them, of course, did come into place. And it was ostensibly due to the exact same thing that had already happened in North Dakota, which was declining oil prices. Um, both of these states are oil rich and um, you know, Wyoming's another one. And uh, the university systems in those states are somewhat dependent upon the largesse of that industry. And whenever that industry experiences a hit, it is often used as an excuse to roll back, uh, you know, public funding for schools and universities. So Alaska was going through this budget cut system and um, Len Gutkin at the Chronicle knew that I had been through a similar experience already at North Dakota about two years before. So he asked me to write an article sort of commenting on the situation in Alaska and explaining what it was like to live through those cuts two years later, you know, what it was it like on campus, what was the temperature of the campus community. So that's where the article started. And that's what I did. I, I went into it explaining what life is like after your university has gone through massive budget cuts after most of your friends and colleagues have left after support systems have been pulled out from under you after majors and classes have been cut and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I described the tone and then the title that they gave to it was my university is dying because I suppose that's the feeling that I communicated in it. <laughs> It's yeah. fair. It's it's very fair. And 
Stony Brook did, did a similar thing. Um, I, re- I recall, yes. Andrew, I, I know. That. I was um, part of those protests. Yep, I was, well, yeah. I, I remember signing petitions on behalf of Stony Brook because one of my PhD advisors had gone there. Well, so what, so what I'm talking about is, um, is when our mutual mentor, Andrews and mine, Peter Manning came to Stony Brook, um, the, he, he came as like a star professor who was gonna be the department head and who was gonna get like 20 hires. Mm-hmm. And this was in, two, this was in the, the school year, I wanna say either of 2001 or of 2000. But we all like September 11th happened and they said, well, I, I guess somehow they shrank, they, they used that as an excuse to shrink the budget so that he yeah. wasn't gonna get all of those hires. Yeah. I mean, you could obviously you could argue that the state's budgetary priorities were elsewhere, but there and and a lot a lot of people's budgetary priorities were elsewhere. Elsewhere, but it's not like we stopped needing a robust department in the English right. in 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 a major New York university. Right. Yeah. In fact, all all the more what I mean, whatever. There's there's a lot there's a lot going on there. But the point is that he was invited in, and then and then this this massive sort of cataclysmic event happened in New York. And then um, the money dried up. And what happens, or what seems to happen every time there is a massive event, or even, I mean, it doesn't have to be that massive, although obviously it can be, is that the money dries up, right? There are always people looking for excuses to say, well, now we can't spend all of this on this budget. We have to reapportion it elsewhere. Yeah, but Stony Brook then had a really, the comparative lit program closed right. a few years ago. Right. Cultural analysis closed. Um, Hispanic language and literature was supposed to close, but then at the last minute, it, there was enough of pressure that they weren't going to shut down the whole department. So I think now as it exists, um, it's like they shrank the Hispanic language and literature mm-hmm. and then they got rid of the theater department. Um, and yeah, there was also pressure to try to shrink the writing department, but they also fought back. But yeah, it's right. It's a countrywide though. Right. Yeah. Response happening. And um, I mean, there's still, it's like every month there's news of a new, new university starting yeah. to limit humanities programs. And exactly. Yeah. People yeah. want the prestige of a, of being associated with a university. That is that is a well known mm-hmm. that is a well known phenomenon and has been since like the twelve hundreds, mm-hmm. but but they but they don't seem to want to to spend the money to maintain it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> well, and I'm thinking so. Right, going back, you were at um, the University of North Dakota, right? Um, how long? Had you stayed at the University of North Dakota? I was there for six years, uh, just long enough to get tenure and then leave. <laughs> um, and it was it was a really good six years in many ways. I, I think of it as um, a period of intense creative and scholarly activity for me because I just felt like I was ramping up and you know getting lots of ideas and getting my my foothold within the various scholarly conversations that I wanted to participate in mm-hmm. and starting to publish and write a lot. 
Um, and so it was a really good context for that. And I had wonderful colleagues. Um, the problem is that, you know, when I came in, there were 21 faculty in my department. And by the time I left, there were seven. And <laughs> so we, we went through a pretty uh, massive watering down of the scholarly project uh, while I was there and, and the direction of the university. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like my um, state school in New Jersey, where I keep in touch with my mentors from there. And when I had arrived, there was maybe 12 tenured faculty, um, and it's a teaching college. And now there's six tenured faculty, and the rest are contingent lecturers um, with one-year contracts. Mm -hmm. And it, like every time someone retires, they just don't hire a tenured faculty member. It's, yeah. I mean, it does seem like, unfortunately, that's the, um, you know, that's the way these universities, if they can just rope someone in for a year, you know, the jobs don't exist with a lot of infrastructure. So yeah. it's, it's almost this, you're lucky that you got a lecturer position. So mm -hmm. are you going exactly. to take that or not? And yeah, um, being beholden to that kind of precarity is, <laughs> you know, I know something that you addressed in your Chronicle piece, which I'm going to read definitely after this. <laughs> want all of the listeners to read um well maybe maybe you know have a shot of whiskey by your side when you read okay. it <laughs> it's not the happiest piece <laughs> <laughs> um so okay so you were at university of north dakota i'm also curious like how was the response of what you were teaching like was there a lot of freedom in you know your approaches material um, yes, at least in the beginning. Um, when I was first hired at UND, I was, you know, hired to be teaching basically within a specific period, um, kind of aligned with their survey of American literature, the second part, which went from 1865 to the present. So it was, you know, late 19th, 20th century, stuff that I felt comfortable handling and covering. It was no big deal. And then, of course, a variety of other classes, including graduate seminars that kind of reflected that same time period and, and focus. Um, but the longer I stayed there, and I was only there for six years, and the more faculty we lost, the more I ended up covering subjects that I had never taught before and never been trained to teach. And so by the time I left UND, I was not really teaching American literature all that much. I was more teaching classes in digital humanities, publishing, writing, creative writing, things like that. Um, I, was, I was trying to make up for these big holes that existed in our curriculum in our department and plug them as best I could. And I feel like that was important work and it also helped me to expand my range as a teacher. So it wasn't even that bad, but it's important to remember that I was doing it because of austerity and, um, and because I had to. That's a good, very, yeah, important point. But like, so you did feel, um, so it doesn't seem like there was any pushback from like, you know, you teaching American literature in a certain way or adding like a gendered analysis or even a queer analysis. Like it was more, we're losing faculty. I yeah. need to just find, I, I now just have to train myself to teach this wide breadth of genres. Right, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I I I worked with a number of really wonderful students um, at UND, um, some of whom have, you know, gone on to 
graduate school and careers, you know, variously connected to writing, publishing, and scholarship. And um, no, I, I never felt like it was um, like there were any methodological battles to be fought there, except for, of course, you know, the old methodological battle of getting uh, students sometimes to get comfortable with theory. But we all go through that, right? It's, yes. it's hard and it's different when we first encounter it. Um, so there's that normal uh, kind of situation. Yes, yes. And you did mention a Stony Brook contact. I don't want to let that get unanswered. Your oh, sure. yeah. advisor got their PhD at Stony Brook? Yeah, uh, Jeffrey Williams. So he came out of the cultural analysis program. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> so shout out to Jeffrey Williams. Um, yes. <laughs> um, but now you're at, I always get nervous. I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but I think it's, is it Champlain? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so in New England, um, mm -hmm. can you remind all the listeners, where is it located? Sure. So now I'm um, associate professor at Champlain College, which is located in Burlington, Vermont, which is um, the whole college is, is a different experience for me because it's more on the small liberal arts college model um, than where I've taught previously. So UND was a giant state school and now I'm at a much more like student focused, you know, like a small environment, small seminar classroom, uh, liberal arts style college. Yeah, and how's that? Ex I mean, <laughs> and we're, we're you know I know you're employed there, but how has it been just in terms of austerity? Or it seems like it doesn't have that same precarity yeah. that you're experiencing at UND. I mean, I think every institution, to some degree, like we were saying previously, is going through. Um, you know, some kind of challenges right now, especially with relation to the way that finances stand in the wake of COVID, right? I was just reading this morning about the massive drop in community college enrollment um, that happened during COVID. Um, so, you know, our institution's dealing with that like everybody is, um, but, you know, it was only my first year there and it was working under the like uh, auspices of COVID, which was strange and weird, um, but it's been a good first year, all things told. You know, I've, I'm adjusting to a new environment and my college has been really rigorous about like taking COVID seriously and enforcing precautions and everything like that. So that's at least something that I think we could all feel really united about and really safe with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. I, mean, I know Adam and I talk a lot about um, as everyone does, the university changing its response, especially to the public, or like what you've done with the Mount is such a public scholarship mm -hmm. project, right? And then you took it into the digital space um, that that infrastructure really is necessary now for the university to communicate to a general audience and to the communities that they're embedded in. Um, like, you know, I'm sure how the Berkshires are responsive to the small liberal arts schools in that area of Massachusetts, for example, or like for us on Long Island, all of our cultural um, museums. Um, and I guess it always does go down to the funding, which is yeah. how is this going to be rewarded by the powers that be or by the department or you know, um, does it count towards your promotions? It's, mm -hmm. you know, in that regard, I always say, I feel like the university's operating 10 years behind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, 
you know, how was your project received by, you know, um, promotion standards or what were you able to put that into your file? Yeah, um, when I was going up for tenure at UND, the digital project, which of course, you know, took hours and hours and hours of work uh, to do, um, it, it did go into the tenure file. It was hard to talk about. It was hard to find ways to like categorize it, um, you know, under the typical roster of faculty achievements or publications or things like that. But, you know, at least I had the advantage of reminding uh, my university that they had helped pay for the early stages of it. So they ought to be recognizing it as work considering they had funded it in the beginning. Um, but I remember that, you know, on our yearly annual evaluations that we had to do at UND as part of our, you know, normal process for uh, promotion and stuff, um, everything was automated. So we had to use these online forms to like enter information about what we'd done during the year, our academic achievements or whatever. And there was a drop down menu where you were supposed to select the type of academic achievement. If it was a book or an article or a story or a lab report or whatever. And there was no option for the kind of work I was doing. And there was no write-in field. So I would end up, you know, just be like, well, like, what is this? Is it a book? Is it, I guess it's kind of like an editing collection. We'll call it that, you know, like whatever, because there was no option for it, which just kind of shows some of the um, obstacles that you run up against sometimes when you're trying to get work like that counted. It's a really funny story. And, and it's, um, it speaks very much to the, to the ways in which a lot of, um, a lot of systems are becoming automated, uh, you know, to save money, and mm -hmm. that automation is making them less um, less plastic, less mm -hmm. um, totally, totally yeah. adaptable to actual <laughs> circumstances. Yeah, the process of doing the like yearly review made me want to like you know throw things um, out the window. So, <laughs> which you're allowed to do, by the way. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's a good it's a good uh, stress reliever. Yeah, um, as long as no one's under you or <laughs> right. the projectile way. But um, yeah, well, and like the work that you've done, Sheila, they're actually um, having dissertations defended that, like I've read that um, podcasts are now counting as dissertations. Oh, great. And um, I know someone who created a electronic game of Walt Whitman, Brooklyn, and that was, um, I think that was for the CUNY Grad Center. That's adorable. Um, um, and like, I realized that, you know, all of this project, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, what you did with the mound, like you've put so much energy into it that it should, in my opinion, it should count somehow towards a dissertation. <laughs> but we just, yeah, exactly. you know, some, some universities are really good at navigating that. Well, yeah, others the are thing still to put into perspective, yeah. um, I still remember my very first article, not article, it wasn't an article, my first essay that I wrote at the university level about Galileo, <laughs> right? And what um, Galileo wrote most of his scholarship, or he wrote his most important uh, piece of scholarship um, in terms of what he's remembered for, right? The dialogue concerning the two chief world systems, he wrote it as a dialogue, right? Because that's what that's what, um, it was a work of public scholarship, right? It was designed mm -hmm. to appeal to the average person, the tradesman, the um, person who had shipping interests in the Mediterranean, right? And yeah. so when we, when we think about like the dissertation, right? That is the form that we put our work in because that's the form we're told to put our work in. And that ends up being a self-fulfilling 
uh, thing, I guess, uh, right? The, because then when we become teachers, we tell our students, uh, your, first, your first major work has to be a dissertation and this is how mm -hmm. you make it. But there's no inherent reason why the like four to five chapter dissertation is the way to go. Yeah for a PhD, the, the, the goal of the dissertation, everybody, everybody who, who takes the process even remotely seriously will tell you that what you're trying to do is make an intervention in a, a body of scholarly work yeah. and say, here's, here's what I understand has been going on up until now. And here's how I'm adding to the conversation and possibly trying to redirect the conversation into an either a new area or a closer look at an older area, mm -hmm. right? And that's all you're doing. And the, the, the idea that you can only do that in the way that we have been doing it for the last, I don't know, 100 years or however long it's been, um, it's probably been quite a bit less than that, but I don't, mm -hmm. I don't exactly know because I don't really study older dissertations very much. Yeah. Um, if any of our listeners does and would like to enlighten us, please, please, we await your letters. You know, we've been talking a lot about austerity, and I will say that part of what you're talking about here, Adam, with the um, expansion of the genre of the dissertation might be, and I don't want to be too optimistic here, but it might be almost a silver lining to part of what we're talking about with austerity that's like, um, as the old models of the university become more tenuous because we're not funding them in the same way. We mm -hmm. also get a little bit more freedom and levity where some of these forms are concerned. And so I'm thinking about um, some of the students at the University of North Dakota who I'm still working with because I, I stayed on some dissertation committees after I left. And it's like, now that things have really crumbled, <laughs> what I'm noticing <laughs> is this increased willingness to experiment. Yeah. And so, you know, right, um, something that would regard like something that would be closer to a public work of scholarship or a public facing, you know, book. So like I'm working with one student who is very inspired by uh, Maggie Nelson's The Argonauts and the format of that book where, you know, theory and criticism is involved in the book that's essentially a memoir and it shows up in the margins. It's like citations that get cited along the way to thinking about what's going on in Nelson's story. And I have a student I'm working with who's interested in replicating that same format in their what we would call a dissertation, but maybe we'll really call it like a, I don't know, nonfiction novel or a memoir or something else. So. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, um, uh, but you're, that makes a lot of sense about austerity, yeah. kind of forcing <laughs> austerity in a way opens up not being beholden to these old models, exactly. like yeah. you said. Like, like, the, like what we talked about um, before that like that self-published uh, books, novels, for instance, are not considered respectable compared to publishing with like the big five or the big four, or however many there are left, until a self-published book makes millions of dollars, and then suddenly it's respectable. Yeah. So, so what what ends up happening is is that if if the 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 respectable ways are not working anymore because people can't actually make a living at them, you're going to find something else that you can, you know, yeah. you're you're going to cast about a bit, and that's. Yeah. And, and that gets back to, right? I, I hope the dialogue comes back. I love reading dialogues. <laughs> it's, 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 partly, it's partly like an issue of neuroatypicality. I don't, I don't like reading um, 
long, closely wrought essays. I, I much prefer it when the essay is presented in a way that Interesting. has something to do with how people learn. Right. Yeah. I don't I don't want just a block of text. It's part it's partly why and how they speak. That's that's part of what's fun about dialogues too, exactly. is that it mirrors speech too. So exactly. you get this and God back and forbid, forth. God forbid you have a few jokes. Like one of the things <laughs> that bothers me most about this planet is that people don't know how funny Galileo was. <laughs> like it's such a simple thing. He's he is hilarious and bitchy and and catty and and he settles scores and he's just like people people think of him as this like as this searcher for truth no he was a courtier who <laughs> was in competition with other court i don't know how this became the galileo channel but we're going to go with it um, <laughs> he was a courtier who was in competition with other courtiers for the attention of these princes with impossibly large purses and impossibly short attention spans and so when you think about like the ways in which, and, and there was the Black Plague rolling into town every seven or eight weeks. So when you think about the challenges that we have, I really do take comfort in the fact that things were shitty back mm. then as well. Quite, quite literally so, since the, the, the internal combustion engine hadn't been invented yet. Um, right? And, and that we, we really can take, um, we really can take solace in the past the way they did in turn back all the way back to the Roman uh, Republic, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we can say they, they were living in difficult times. They found a way through. Yes, it was all about money back then as it is now, but, but they still mm -hmm. found a way to make something beautiful and lasting. And we mm -hmm. can too. Mm -hmm. It is comfortable. It's, right. a, it's a comfortable thought, especially when we think of the writers that we are gravitating towards, like, mm -hmm. Yes, I mean Walt Whitman didn't graduate high school. Right. Mm -hmm. um, actually, didn't even. Well, he like just finished middle school in our kind of curriculum. Um, and Edith Wharton, even with all of her, like you know, calling her dynastic wealth. Well, well yeah, she is the wealthiest author, especially female author of the time. Um, but she didn't actually go to college. No, she she never went to a formal school of any kind, high school, etc. Um, but that was standard for her time period for for women of her class, especially you know who were um, encouraged to lead extremely private lives, um, extremely private lives, like like you know sheltered, fenced in lives where nobody would see you up until the point where you were like married and safely ensconced in society. Right. I'm gonna put this out there. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah well it's a it's a true um introvert stream yeah. Yeah, right. but when you're not yeah. an introvert it's becomes a cage i don't um, think i well, would want to wear a corset but like <laughs> i would honest maybe i would make do like it would be a trade-off yeah yeah but i think like because i was so curious how the library becomes um, not only an obje object of study for you, Sheila, but the library is this main character. Mm -hmm. um, and for Wharton, right, she had enough funds to create this private library of hers. Um, but I'm curious, you know, what was your fetishization, fascination with the library? Like, do you have a really early memory of encountering libraries? 
So I was just talking with my sister because I'm visiting my family right on the West Coast. And my sister and I were talking about the libraries and the schools that we went to, like in our in our public school district growing up. And she was like, I can't remember our middle school library. What did it look like? And I'm like, no, I had this crazy popcorn ceiling and you could throw pencils into it and it would stick. And then the pencils would rain down sometimes. And then I remembered that like, I've got incredibly specific memories of every library I've ever spent time in. Um, and probably for a pretty good, you know, functional reason, those were spaces that I associated with like good energy and good vibes, which, you know, in middle school is a real like accomplishment. That's not always what dictates your life in middle school. So I won't even say that I was the type of person who necessarily sought refuge or hung out in libraries, you know, to get rid of the rest of the world. But I certainly did that in books and, and libraries were the gateway to accessing them. Um, so I do have really vivid memories of the libraries that I have spent time in. Um, the difference I think sometimes is that, you know, I grew up um, on the West Coast in the Seattle suburbs, and the West Coast is so characterized by Western sprawl um, in terms of like its aesthetics and what it looks like and what it feels like. And growing up reading books about old America and the East Coast and the 19th century was like, it, that seemed like a different world to me. Um, it felt like a different world. I just imagined that the aesthetics were completely different. And so the first time I started to encounter those things, like old libraries, old books, things that had a real like smell to them and had predated like the 1960s, that was really bizarre and exciting to me. It felt like I was being ushered into a world that I had pre previously been kept separate from um, and, you know, sort of gaining acceptance in it. Right. No, that's an interesting idea. I was actually reading... Um... I, I briefly went down this rabbit hole of like reading about the residential schools in the United States and Canada, which has mm -hmm. been such a horrible scandal. In Absolutely the horrible. In the, past, yep. um, in the past year or so. And it should have been a scandal in the past 200 years, but you know, we're catching yeah, up. Exactly. And, exactly. Yes. Because and, um, native persons um, have been talking about this for ages. So it's, right, it's right. definitely been known. So, yeah. so one, so one of the things that they were talking about was how do you, how do you demonstrate that, let's say um, a, a tribe of people who were indigenous to Seattle, the Seattle area, let's say, before the Europeans got there. How do you demonstrate that this was their land and that it mm -hmm. should get repatriated to them? And one of the ways that you can actually demonstrate it is how they ordered the forests that mm -hmm. are still, they're, they're, they're still working that way. There are crops essentially that are tree height and then there are crops that are vine height and then there are yeah. crops that are shrub height and stuff like that. And so, um, and so the old things in, in that area would be very old indeed, but not necessarily something that a child would notice. Right, without extremely old, training. you know, like we have old growth trees on the West Coast and you don't have them on the East Coast because they all got cut down. So <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good point, Adam. Yeah. No, it is. And well, in your, like all the work you've done, Sheila, did Edith Wharton go to public libraries? Um, she didn't go to them as a patron, like as somebody who was taking books out, but she did frequent them in other ways. Um, she was involved with the Lenox Library in Lenox, Massachusetts, um, which is a, a public library that was active during her time. And in fact, she was um, she participated in its founding and in um, helping to donate resources to it. And, and Edith Wharton, you know, is not uh, distinguished as a philanthropist in her history, but she did have philanthropic projects, and that's one that she felt pretty strongly about. So she donated furnishings 
and carpets and books to the Lennox Library, some of which were previously her own books or her father's, um, which I find very interesting because she really uh, clung, sentimentally speaking, to the books that she inherited from her father, which were the sort of seed of her own personal library collection. But some of them she was willing to part with, I guess ones that she thought would be good for you know, the public to consume, ended up in the Lennox Library. And um, in fact, during the summer of 2013, when I was first starting to do research at the Mount, I went to the Lennox Library and I checked out a book that was owned by Edith Wharton's father. It was still in circulation, which is amazing. And, that, and then I mentioned to them that this was the case and then I don't think it's in circulation anymore. But... Right. <laughs> you, 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 you hold back on mentioning that to them until you're returning. Right. <laughs> you're <Yes. done>. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Oh my, that, wow. that's an old trick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but ah, it's just yeah. so fascinating. I think that, um, like speaking to our time right now, there's just so many parallels about like how someone with such privilege can really insert themselves in civic projects. Mm -hmm. And like, what can they do good to educate the public? And yeah. Edith really did um, practice that. She did. And, you know, I should actually give her more credit. I said she wasn't distinguished as a philanthropist. And I was thinking mostly in terms of the money that she gave to things like, you know, there's no libraries or universities named after her after she died. But she was distinguished, you know, for her efforts during World War One, when when she um, put a lot of money and time and resources into supporting the displaced refugees of World War One. And then, of course, um, wrote a book about it, The Book of the Homeless, which is a edited collection where she got a bunch of very famous people um, to uh, contribute stories or essays to this collection, which they sold in order to generate funds to house um, Belgian refugees. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think what I say about the what's very relevant today is just the excesses of what people who are in the 1% that, yeah. unfortunately I would say now in our society, the majority are coveting the wealth instead of actually sharing it with the public. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> it's not like that can't, that they can't change those ways. I think right. like you, like everything's kind of centered around, we're in this really, interstitial period of what's going to come with um, making our work more access accessible, speak like having to open up the university because there's really no other choice in mm -hmm. terms of continuing these projects. Um, yeah. But yeah, the creativity is what it keeps me optimistic. <laughs> I'm optimistic. <laughs> I'm optimistic when I see a book like yours that really has so many different methodologies and the cultural work you did with it, um, you know, puts me in a good mood. I'm like, okay, this is, this is happening good. and it's, you know, being so public with the types of projects I do with scholarship, seeing that it can go into a book is yeah. very, um, you know, provides a good new blueprint. And for that, I want to thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, you're welcome. And I'm glad yeah. to hear it. Yeah, and I know as we're ending, what are you currently thinking about, working on? Um, you know, is there another archive that you've <laughs> let the door down of? 
Um, we'll see. Yeah, I have ideas. Um, right now, I just finished up editing a new edition of Wharton's The Age of Innocence, which is going to be published by Norton. And so I was um, working on, you know, um, creating new footnotes and explanatory, you know, notes for it, and then also writing a new introduction to it. And um, so I really enjoyed that process. That was fun to get to like spend a lot of close time with a text that I already love and know very well. Um, and I got to read through it three whole times in the past couple of months, so that was great. Um, and I also just finished up writing an essay uh, for Magiskill Magazine, which I've published with previously, that's about the idea or the relationship between books and parties and the way in which a book is a party and a party mm -hmm. is like a book. It was sort of inspired by the fact that I just published two books during a pandemic year. And so I didn't get to have any parties to celebrate the books that I published. And so I was feeling a little like nostalgic thinking about the uh, bookish parties and bookish celebrations I've been to in the past, good, bad, and ugly, all of the you know range. And then also thinking about where parties show up in fiction and how they're treated. Um, so, you know, inspired a little bit by Mrs. Dalloway, thinking about the idea of a, of a party as a little slice of life that you offer people. And um, yeah, missing the experience of getting to celebrate my own books. But of course, you know, thinking about the way that a book kind of stages a party anyway, by bringing a bunch of people together. Yeah, Sheila would buy the flowers herself. I certainly would, <laughs> That's yeah. <what> I, <laughs> just inverted that a little. Um, I, I have one more yeah. question, which is a bit of a practical question, which is what would you tell people who, like, you've obviously gained massive and productive access to all, to at least one major archive. Um, what would you what would you say to people who are trying to do the same sort of thing? Somebody who falls in love, let's say, with uh, to 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 bring it back to what we were talking about at the, at the beginning, someone who falls in love with Melville or Henry James or something like that, and they want to they want to get access to like a specific archive mm -hmm. for for that author. Well, I would say start by showing up, and that's not always as easy as it sounds, right? For some people, it's actually really hard to travel physically to an archive and and try to be there to access the materials in you know a real physical sense. Um, and I would also say that smaller archives, like we've been talking about, Adam, with the um, you know the materials at uh, Melville's materials, and then also Andrew with Whitman's, right? These smaller archives are often run by you know pretty um, thinly stretched staff that if you can offer them something, if you can give them some help, if you can give them some free labor, will probably be very grateful and receptive and also be interested in working with you because that's kind of how they they function. They, they depend upon those working relationships on, on that, you know, um, crossover labor that they can get from people who are willing to do it on their behalf. So yeah, I would say, you know, first, of course, showing up. And then second, if you can find a sort of smaller archive that is not the Beinecke, is not necessarily the New York Public Library, two places where I've done research in the past, wonderful archives, but also very well stocked, very well staffed. Mm -hmm. um, if you can find something, you know, that's smaller, that's maybe struggling or hurting a little bit and needs your help, needs your labor, needs your research and assistance, that can be a great way of um, as you said, getting access and getting in the door. Yeah, and it's like I did work with Wild at the British Library, and I've also done work at the Morgan Library. And yes, wonderful gems. They're so, um, the aura is very positive. As you said, there's good energy mm -hmm. in these spaces. Um, but yeah, working with these small um, archives, you get to know the staff, right? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, with the Whitman birthplace, I'm in communication with 
all of the administrators there and helping with walking tours. Like you, yeah. these opportunities start to build. And, you know, at the Morgan Library, they're not, they have enough of that infrastructure. They're not going to pull a scholar onto their team mm-hmm. to, you know, do tours for them because they already have their events um, laid out. So yeah, there's great, I love that we're plugging. Uh, <laughs> author, especially, yeah, author ar- archives really are, um, it's so wonderful when you find um, a figure that you're so excited by and you wanna learn more and they actually have yeah. uh, an archive at their house. Mm-hmm. Um, and not true in many cases you know like yeah. that's not always the case that that an author's library remains put together and consistent um yeah. sometimes what i i just want to i just want to end on on a note that i think is really fascinating that when i was doing my um just doing the bulk writing of my dissertation at various libraries in new york i encountered the edward said room in the <laughs> butler library at columbia and i found there's a book in there that was written like it's i think it's i think it's amos oz Hmm. it was one of his novels and it says something like to edward all the best from amos in english Hmm. um and it was these little it that will never that will never be useful to me in my research (laughs) ever but it was so cool and that's actually another good piece of advice for working with archives is like if you show up, you will find something that is interesting. You'll think maybe initially this will never be useful to me in my research, but if you care about it enough and you're interested enough, you'll find a way to make it relevant, right? You'll find <laughs> something to write about that that deals with that subject so that you have the excuse of talking about it and telling other people about it. Yep, yep. Like Whitman's Family Bible having locks of hair in it, mm. which I only know because I've gotten to see it. But yeah, oh. If you have the long the hair margin. and you're reading yeah. a book, like the ends can get <laughs> caught when you're turning the pages. Yes. Yes. But I love it. Um, in a number of Wharton books, um, I found dog fur, pieces of dog fur, because she would often read with her dogs on her lap. So wow. you would get like um, tufts of dog fur, clearly not human, that would stick to the adhesive binding in the middle of the spine. That's adorable. We should clone <laughs> Wharton's dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Now that's such those treasures are um what i love working with physical copies um but thank you so much sheila this was wonderful Um, this was very enjoyable yeah yeah thank you for we covered such a wide range and it's you know very exciting so i can't wait to read your new essay that you have out um because i'm nostalgic for parties right now um (laughs) and yeah well, definitely we'll plug when The Age of Innocence, when is yeah, that let, being released? That know. should be um, next year. That should be out in 2022 at some Wonderful. point. Wonderful. Okay, we'll, we'll make sure. Keep tabs. Yes, maybe we'll have I wrote, you I wrote a, a really scintillating introduction, so I hope people read it because it's, it's, it's all about boobs and how important <laughs> boobs are in that book. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't need to be told that. <laughs> That's a teaser. So... Yep. No, when it comes out, we'll definitely make sure to have you come on to plug it and, you know, capture the readers. I mean, I'm already (laughs) now eager to see what's going on there. 
Um, <laughs> thank you so much. And, um, you know, also Sheila is doing a really exciting um, vacation right now, right? <laughs> of hiking. So mm -hmm. enjoy all of the hiking. Thank um, you. But yeah, and that's it for now. Okay, we're going to put a bookmark in this. Please continue the conversation with us at our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. You'll find our blog, as well as links to our Twitter, Facebook, email, and a brand new donate button so you can support what we do here. Thanks for listening. And now we're quite excited to be featuring Sheila performing The Green Rolling Hills of Pennsylvania, which is adapted from Utah Phillips's The Green Rolling Hills of West Virginia. Sheila plays guitar and Michael Pruitt plays mandolin. If you want to see the YouTube video of them performing, please check out our show notes. Enjoy. Okay. <laughs> Rolling Hills, Pennsylvania. I've seen.